Welcome back to Mr. Summer's Story by Patrick Suskind. This is Chapter 2. In the days when I was still climbing trees, there lived in our village, or rather not in our village, in Lower Lake, but in the next village of Upper Lake, though it wasn't easy to tell them apart, because Lower Lake and Upper Lake and all the other villages weren't strictly separated, but were set in a row along the lake shore with no apparent beginning or end, like a slender chain of gardens and homes, farms and boathouses. So, then there lived by the lake, barely a mile from our house, a man named Mr. Summer. No one knew Mr. Summer's first name, if it was Peter or Paul or Henry or Francis Xavier, or if he might not be Dr. Summer or Professor Summer or Professor Dr. Summer. Everyone knew him simply as Mr. Summer, and no one knew if Mr. Summer had a job or if he had ever had one. They knew only that Mrs. Summer had a job, that she was a doll maker by profession. Day in, day out, she would sit in their apartment in the basement of the house owned by a Stranglemeyer, the house painter, and made little dolls out of sawdust, wool, and other fabrics. Then she wrapped them all in a large package, which she took to the post office once a week. On her way back from the post office, she stopped at the grocers, the bakers, the butchers, and the vegetable stand, one after the other, and returned home with four shopping bags stuffed full, and never left her apartment for another week, and made more dolls. The Summers had simply arrived in town one day, she on the bus, he on foot, and had been there ever since. They had no children, no relatives, and they never had any visitors. Although people knew almost nothing about them, and in particular about Mr. Summer, it can be justly claimed that in those days Mr. Summer was the best-known man in the whole county. Within a radius of forty miles around the lake, there was not a man, woman, or child, no, not even a dog, who did not know Mr. Summer, because Mr. Summer was constantly on the move. From early morning until late evening, Mr. Summer walked the countryside. Not a day passed that Mr. Summer was not on the go. Snow or hail, wind or gully washer, searing sun or approaching hurricane, Mr. Summer was underway. He often left the house before sunrise, or so the fishermen said, who were out on the lake by four o'clock setting their nets, and he often did not return until late at night, when the moon stood high in the heavens. He could cover incredibly long distances within that time, too. It, has, it was nothing out of the ordinary for Mr. Summer to circle the lake in one day, a distance of some twenty-five miles, or to walk to the county seat and back, six miles each way. Never a problem for Mr. Summer. We children would be trudging sleepily to school at half-past seven, and coming toward us we would see Mr. Summer, who had been underway for hours by then. We would walk home at noon, tired and hungry, and Mr. Summer would pass us at an energetic gait, and if I happened to look out my window at night before going to bed, I might very well see the tall, gaunt figure of Mr. Summer. Hurrying past below on Shore Road, a bit like a shadow. He was easy to spot, even at some distance. He was unmistakable. In winter he wore a long, black, voluminous, and strangely stiff coat, and with every step he made it bounced around his body like an oversized husk, plus rubber boots, 
and a ski hat with a pom-pom to cover his bald head. In summer, however, and for Mr. Summer, summer lasted from early March till late October, and was by far the largest part of the year, Mr. Summer wore a flat straw hat with a black band, a caramel-colored linen shirt, and a caramel-colored pair of shorts, and sticking out from them and looking almost absurdly skinny were long, sinewy legs, which seemed to be nothing but tendons and varicose veins, and ended in a pair of bulky mountaineering boots. In March, these legs were dazzlingly white, and the varicose veins clearly revealed an inky blue map of multi-tributary rivers. Within a few weeks, however, his legs had turned a honey color, and by July they were glossy caramel brown like his shirt and shoes, and by autumn sun, wind, and weather had tanned them so dark that there was no way to differentiate varicose veins, tendons, and muscles, and Mr. Summer's legs looked like gnarled branches of an old pine tree stripped of its bark, until in November they finally vanished under his long pants and his long black coat, where, removed from strangers' eyes, they found their way back to their original cheesy white by the next spring. Mr. Summer carried two items with him, both winter and summer, and no one had ever seen him without them. The first was his walking stick, and the second his backpack. The walking stick was no ordinary cane, but a long, slightly sinuous walnut staff, which reached higher than Mr. Summer's shoulder, and served him as a kind of third leg, and without which he would never have attained his phenomenal speed or covered those incredible distances, far exceeding those of a normal hiker. Every third step Mr. Summer would pitch his staff forward with his right hand, brace it against the ground, and use it to propel himself forward with all his might, so that it looked as if his legs were merely gliding, and that his right arm supplied the actual thrust which was transmitted to the ground by the staff, rather like a river boatman pulling his barge through the water. The backpack, however, was always empty, or almost empty, because it contained, as far as anyone knew, nothing except Mr. Summer's sandwich and a folded hip-length rubber cape with a hood, which Mr. Summer slipped on if he was surprised by rain during his walk. And where did his wanderings lead him, I wondered? Well, what was the goal of his endless marches about? For what reason and to what purpose did Mr. Summer race through the countryside for twelve, fourteen, sixteen hours a day? No one knew. It was shortly after the war when the summer settled in the village, and at that time no one took special notice of such long walks, because in those days everyone walked around with backpacks, there was no gas, no one had a car, and the bus ran only once a day. There was nothing to heat with, nothing to eat, and it often required hikes of several hours to find a couple of eggs or potatoes or some flour or a pound or two of coal, even stationery or razor blades, and then you had to lug your prize home in a backpack or a wheelbarrow. But within a few years you could buy everything in the village, get your coal delivered, take a bus five times a day, and within a few more years, the butcher had his own car, then the mayor, then the dentist, and Stranglemeyer, the house painter, rode a motorcycle, and his son had a motorbike. The bus still stopped three times a day, and no one would have thought of walking four hours to the county seat to take care of an errand or get his passport renewed. No one, except Mr. Summer. 
just as he always had. Mr. Summer walked. Early in the morning, he buckled on his backpack, took his staff in hand, and hurried off across fields and meadows, down main roads and byways, through the woods, around the lake, into town, and back from village to village, until late in the evening. But the remarkable thing was that he never took care of any business. He delivered nothing. He bought nothing. His backpack was always empty, except for his sandwich and his cape. He never went to the post office or the courthouse. He left that to his wife. He paid no visits. He never stopped anywhere. When, when he went into town, he didn't drop in somewhere for a bite to eat or a quick drink. He never even sat down on a bench to rest for a minute, but simply turned on his heels and hurried home or, or wherever he was headed. If you asked, where have you been, Mr. Summer, or where are you going, he impatiently shook his head as if he had a fly on his nose and mumbled something to himself that you either did not understand at all, or just bits and pieces of it that sounded like, quick clapping, grinding, heavy, getting awful, hurrying like this, breaking to spare him. And before you could say, pardon? What's that? Where? He had already given a sturdy poke with his staff and scooted away. Only once, only once, did I ever hear Mr. Summer utter a complete sentence. A clear, precise, unambiguous sentence, which I never forgot and which rings in my ears even today. <laughs>